good morning and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Julie Dye and I'm here with my co-host, Amy Shepard. Good morning. The Morning Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the medtech industry. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Lisa Ochoa. Dr. Ochoa has partnered with Abbott Cardiovascular for a new trial study of a new treatment for severe disease of the leg arteries. We look forward to catching up with you today. Welcome, Dr. Ochoa. Good morning, and thank you for having me, Julie and Amy. I'm really honored to be here. Dr. Ochoa, we see you are from San Antonio, just down the road from us. Please tell us about your background and your career path. Sure. So I'm actually originally from the Rio Grande Valley, Mission, Texas, right in the in the border between Texas and Mexico. Uh, did my undergraduate training down there and then moved to Houston where I spent all my training in medical school, in general surgery residency, and in vascular surgery fellowship. I then uh, moved to San Antonio where I joined a large vascular practice 10 years ago and then began to realize that I wanted to accomplish something else within my private practice career. Uh, and I realized that I would have to start my own practice if I wanted to reach those goals. So three and a half years ago, I began my practice called the San Antonio Vascular and Endovascular Clinic, or the SAVE Clinic for short. My clinic's uh, focus goals uh, are to decrease diabetic amputation rates in the zip codes in San Antonio at the highest rates, and to do that by collaborating with every vested entity, such as local hospitals, local doctor's office, managed care groups, nonprofits, academic centers, our local city and state leaders to bring attention to the problem and realize that if we're going to fix a healthcare outcome, such so end stages, diabetic amputations, we have to work on all the social determinants of health upstream from that issue. That's such an important work that you do, um, especially in the communities where you're working now. And, you know, there's been so much discussion lately about inequities in healthcare. And we heard about some work that you're doing with Abbott, the Life BTK trial, which is an initiative that encourages more equitable healthcare by expanding access to medical device clinical trials. Um, to patients like those that you serve. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about this work that you're doing. So as a private practice, and I was initially an independent practice, vascular surgeon, kind of working out in the community, it is not often that I have the opportunity to be able to do clinical research with state-of-the-art new technology that Abbott has provided. My patient population is a diabetic population that has a lot of what we call peripheral arterial disease, and that is the buildup of cholesterol and plaque in the blood vessels that go to the legs. There are many other risk factors for that, but what happens with our diabetics, what's unique about treating diabetic uh, vascular disease is that it happens in the blood vessels below the knee, which are smaller caliber, more difficult to treat, and historically do not respond well to our traditional treatments such as just balloon angioplasty. And so I was introduced to Abbott because like you mentioned, they realized that if they're going to have new technology to treat these disease problems, well, we have to do the research on the patients that have the disease. Uh, and unfortunately, most of these big clinical trials are usually performed in big academic centers, which are in the middle of a big urban city, 
where patients like mine, which are usually uh, social, are usually uh, underserved, economically deprived, don't have the resources to go to a big metal cent medical center via transportation issues like that. So they reached out to me and have really worked with me to try to create the infrastructure within my practice to bring in patients who, who would qualify and help support them through the entire trial. Um, it's, it's a very unique relationship. You know, I, I'm very impressed that we're now, we're now in medicine realizing that all the research that used to be done were those who had access to tertiary referral centers like academic centers. But the people suffering from the disease, these disease processes are out in the community and out in rural areas. And if we want to get real data, we need those real patients. Yeah. So that's interesting. You know, San Antonio, as you mentioned, has a, a larger growing population of diabetes. Um, I believe it's twice that of any other large city in the nation. Based on, on your and your comments, how are you building trust and communicating this opportunity with your patients who would be eligible to be part of the LIFE BTK trial? You're, that's a great question because as you can imagine, simply being capable to do a trial, we still have to enroll our patients. We, I mentioned the social determinants of health really are affects healthcare outcomes more so than anything else when we look at the outcomes such as diabetic amputations. And one of those social determinants are health literacy. And so to be able to even explain the disease process of peripheral arterial disease and how diabetes contributes to that and how this all puts them at risk for amputations, that conversation alone is complicated. But to bring into new technology that they probably cannot understand, what I really base that relationship with and what they do identify with is that the idea that this is research that could potentially benefit their family and their local community. And so after explaining the technical part of it, some of them understand, some not so well, but when I let them know that this is the opportunity for them to have a bigger impact in their community, it is that connection for them usually that convinces them they should be a part of the trial. Yeah, that's really important. You know, health literacy um, is, is a really critical factor in all of this. And I was wondering, you know, beyond health literacy, you know, there's so many, you know, you talked about social determinants of health. There's so many factors that are affecting that. And so what are some of the other ways that we can, you know, work as an industry to create more equitable health care, you know, in San Antonio and the rest of the world? You know, I have to say that my, the solution is not a single doctor solution. It is a community solution, and everyone has a role. Um, it really was eye-opening to me when I began to learn that when I'm looking at a healthcare outcome like diabetic amputations, which I would think that me as a vascular surgeon, we have more control over, that the care that I provide is only 20% of that outcome and everything else from access to healthy food, health literacy, transportation, education, uh, safe places to exercise, all these other things have a bigger impact. And so that's where we all have a role, whether it's our local high schools or our colleges, it's important for us, the medical community, to, to educate them on how important it is 
to take care of our health and that they have a role as they go through their education, educating their, their community, their family, and their friends. And so it's really interesting because I'm a part of some local uh, medically uh, inclined high schools. I'm part of the local medical school here. And what I have found is that when we empower our students to make a difference in their community, that's where the passion comes out. Um, also, part of the, the challenge when we talk about access to healthcare is a big issue. Access means many, many different things, but in the most basic sense, it's do I have a place to go? That I, can, that I can reach, a clinic, a hospital. And so even in areas like the south side of San Antonio, we have a disparate amount of clinical or healthcare clinics for them to go to compared to the north side of San Antonio that is overrun with clinics and physical therapy office and hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers. So the physical access, that's where I think we physicians, where we can choose where to put some of our clinics to improve access, physical access to care. The other part on access is, do we have insurance? Are they funded? Uh, it's great if you have a clinic right down the street, but if you don't have insurance, then you don't qualify to, to get the primary care and the preventative medicine to, to treat yourself. And so that's another part where I think we in policy, uh, in our government can help, is how do we make sure we, we have more insurance and access to healthcare from a funding aspect of all our patients. What's interesting is, yes, we need to expand uh, Medicaid in Texas, and that would help a lot. But even so, what I found that the patients on the south side qualify for many of Medicaid or something that we call CareLink, which is a county system here, that qualify for many things. It's just they don't know how to access what is available. So if we can create programs to enroll everyone who does qualify for any type of funding, I think that's an advantage for everybody. Yeah. Dr. Ochoa, clinical trials and studies are critical to advancements in medical science and technologies, yet the racially and ethnically diverse communities remain drastically upper, underrepresented in clinical research. How can the medical community improve marketing and bring more awareness to clinical trials to these underserved demographics? So I honestly believe that our, our big device companies and medical companies need to reach out to more physicians like small practices like I have that are really out in the community in these minority populations. If we still expect uh, these patients to travel many miles to a congested urban center, that is not going to happen. These populations have historically had lack of access to care, to opportunities, and we have many decades to make up for that, for, for reaching out to them, for creating the access, for creating the infrastructure to allow access to these patients. The other part that you all imply in all these questions you've asked me is how do we gain trust from these communities? And the reality is you need, you need physicians and you need caretakers who do bond and understand these patients and from a culturally sensitive perspective as well. For example, in my clinic, a lot of my patients speak primarily Spanish. And if we don't have a Spanish-speaking physician to be able to relay the message and the opportunity of enrolling in a uh, research trial, well, then that's part of the issue as well. I think there's layers to how we do that. One of them is we do need to produce more physicians who uh, look like the population that they're treating. 
we also need to be able to encourage and incentivize those physicians, highly qualified, trained physicians, to go into these areas. Many of these areas uh, historically have low property value. They're seen as low economic areas. And so how do we change the economics to encourage these physicians and other healthcare entities to invest in the infrastructure of these areas where the, this minority population is. It's an economic win for everybody because the, these are the workers of our city. These are the, the janitors the, who take care, during COVID, took care of our hospitals. These are our, our waiters, our waitresses, the people who, who sustain a city. And so when we can invest in the health of these populations, I think everybody wins. Dr. Ocho, I, I can tell you're so passionate about this topic and about the, you know, the the people that you serve. And, you know, you bring up some really great points about how we've got to get young doctors to come back into our communities and, you know, serve serve where they came from, right? And so, you know, I know that's not always easy to do. And so I'm wondering how technologies like telehealth um, are playing a part in being able to reach those populations that, you know, may not have traditionally have had access to the healthcare that they need. So, you know, telehealth or any other technologies that you see playing a por- an important role in, you know, these really, you know, critical discussions that we're having. So I do believe that telehealth can complement in improving access, especially to specialty care. That's kind of difficult. Uh, but, you know, the reality, I'm going to tell you what my personal experience was with telehealth during the COVID pandemic, is that that relies on on kind of technology literacy of the patient. That relies that they actually have a cell phone that has a camera on it. That relies on that they don't have a pay phone that will take up all their minutes for us to have a clinic visit. That relies on patients knowing how to, for example, show me the wound on their foot with a phone. And so... What I found with my patients is that it was very difficult for some of them to adapt to that uh, telemedicine as a replacement for a clinic visit for someone like a specialty like I am as a vascular surgeon. On the other hand, it really created uh, better access to some patients who still had to travel to see me. We've done their studies at a previous visit, but now I can just follow up on a telehealth visit. I can explain the results of our studies, and we can still have that face-to-face interaction that is so valued uh, in, in gaining the trust of my patients. So I think telehealth is a complement, but not the complete solution. Yeah, that makes sense. Switching gears a bit, I wanted to know a little bit more about PAD prevention and awareness platforms in which you are involved. Could you tell us more? Sure. So I believe PAD prevention should start when we're children. And so, you know, we've all heard of those campaigns and we probably were in elementary school when, remember, they showed us those lungs, like the black lung, you know, for the person that smokes and the healthy lung. And I remember being a child in elementary, seeing that and going to my parents and my dad and saying, dad, you've got to quit smoking. Now we focus a lot on heart health and and on what that means for kids, but we don't talk about vascular health very much. And so I believe that that at every point from grade school to middle school to high school to college to medical school to residency, 
to the older elderly population, there are interventions everywhere. And so I try to really be a participant of uh, some place in that, uh, in every one of those areas. Uh, on the lower end, so I'm part of a nonprofit called Earn a Bike. And Earn a Bike, it works with uh, elementary school kids, grades three to five. And what we do is we educate on nutrition, on exercise. We do bike safety, bike maintenance classes. They have to show up. They have to do their homework. They have, a, they have to have a parent or a family member involved. At the end of the curriculum, which is employed during their school day, they get to earn a brand new bike that they build out of a box for Christmas with a volunteer. And volunteers are usually our local cyclists who are often doctors, engineers, nurses, who can also serve kind of as a mentor to these kids. And the parents go through workshops on how to create healthy meals for their families, on how to get access to health care, and many other workshops for the parents as well. And so my idea is that if we can teach kids at an early age that healthy eating and activity is the key to getting stronger, getting smarter, and being successful, then they never end up as a diabetic in my office. I also work with uh, the academic centers in town. I lecture and I have many um, medical students and residents shadow my office uh, and see what I do and how I interact with patients. I think showing uh, our future doctors that you can have a private practice that contributes to the community and makes a difference and still is financially viable is an important experience for them. I'm part of uh, another high school called Cast Med, uh, which is a very unique model. Uh, right now in the country. And what cat, what these CAS schools are a partnership between the HEB Foundation, which we all know about, uh, and SAISD. And what they have done is they created uh, focus schools on tech, on STEM, and on medicine. And they've recruited industry leaders to be a part of creating the curriculum for these students. So that the idea is that these high school students have immediate exposure to what their future will look like. Uh, they do a lot of problem-based learning projects and interacting with the community already. And so to me, that is a phenomenal way to build our future leaders in healthcare and public health or physicians. Um, and so I'm really excited about being a part of that uh, innovation of new education. We all know education is key. I could go on. I'm going to just mention a couple more that are important on the national level. I'm definitely a part of my own society, the Society of Vascular Surgery. Uh, but there's also nonprofits called Vascular Cures and the American Limb Preservation Society. And these are nationwide uh, nonprofits that include all the partners you need uh, to prevent amputations, such as podiatrists, vascular surgeons, wound care doctors, plastic surgeons, infectious disease doctors. And how we come together and create a message and create access for not only other physicians, but for the patients to have the resources that they need whether it's information or access to, to a physician, uh, to, to be their own advocate to prevent the end-stage complications of diabetes, such as diabetic amputations. Thank, thank you for that, Dr. Ochoa. It, you know, we, we're obviously med tech communicators, and our channel is to provide an avenue for information like this. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that we were able to talk to you and to learn about how you're getting involved in the community and how you're helping underserved populations. Um, so thanks for all of that. I appreciate it. 
Well, thank you for, the, for your time. I appreciate the invite. So Dr. Ochoa, we have one parting question for you. Since you're here on the Morning Fix podcast, we'd love to know what you do for your morning fix. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I know most physicians will probably say coffee, but that's not my, I'm not a coffee drinker really. Uh, my morning fix is at least at least 30 minutes of some kind of high intensity exercise just to get a little bit in somewhere in my day. And so I have a Peloton bike. I know we've all heard that. I have a rower, I have an elliptical, I do some weights. And so what I find is that's kind of giving me my high and my fix for the morning to get me through my day. Love it, that's great. Well, it's always fun to hear about morning rituals and what helps people start their day off on the right foot. So thank you again, Dr. Ochoa. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, and we appreciate your time. <laughs>